Hey y'all, this is Mo. I just want to thank you for choosing to listen to Parenting is Political. There are over 700,000 podcasts out and active right now, today. So the fact that you're listening to this one, I don't think it's a coincidence, and I appreciate you being here. If you'd like to show your support for Parenting is Political, you can go to our website and sign up as a paid subscriber. There are monthly giving options as well as one-time donation options. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they aren't free to make. So I would appreciate any support that y'all could give to help me continue to make Parenting is Political. I hope y'all enjoy the episode. Bye! Hey everyone, welcome back to Parenting is Political. This is Mo. And I'm Jasmine. And we are joined by our 13-month-old little baby, August. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with our podcast, we uh, believe that systems of oppression teach us that young people in particular have no space in the world, or we should hide them away, or work or labor can't be a part of family. Um, And so we're not going to censor Augie. You're going to hear chatter and noise. Probably some crashing. Yeah, we might pause. But it's basically the digital version of Bring Your Kid to Work Day. Yeah. And uh, we used to have August on the podcast whenever Augie was a baby and was making Mm -hmm. little cooing sounds. Everyone finds that cute. But August is now, like, really into, like, tearing things off of the desk and yelling really loud. So I was all, are we sure we want to do it? And Jasmine was all, yeah. Yeah. So hang in there with us, and if you have a hard time hearing because of the ambient noise of a little chattering, uh, now year old baby, yeah. check out the transcripts. Yeah, which I am uh, fervently working on, and will be fervently. will be on our website as soon as possible. Sweet. Well, it has been a minute since we released an episode. How have you been, Jess? Um, I almost died. <laughs> Yeah, you did. Uh, And we'll talk about that, I guess, at another episode. Today we're talking about, though, either or thinking. We are. And finishing up the habits, uh, culture of white supremacy resource conversations that we started way back when. Yes. And as a refresher for those who maybe haven't listened to the episodes or are just brand new and listening to the first one that's popping up on your podcast app, we have been discussing um, at length the different characteristics of white supremacy culture. So far we've covered... Augie is totally about to pull a keyboard off the Yeah, and knock my water over. (laughs) So far we have covered the idea of um, perfectionism, sense of urgency, We've talked about a fear of open conflict. Did we do another one? Mm. No, I think that was it. I don't we remember. Had... I've had a psych- psychiatric <laughs> intervention since that episode. Yeah. So I think that's a, it. A bitch has a poor memory. Yes. Uh, I have done two interviews um, in between those ones, so that's why I was thinking there was more. Um, so this week we're going to be covering what's called either or thinking. And the reason that we're covering it is just um, just so that we can start to unlearn some of these habits and then relearn habits that are more um, transformative and restorative to ourselves and to our community in whatever space or community that you show up in. So... I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. She ready. She, she ready. Uh, cool. So, Jasmine, either we're thinking... What, what is either or thinking? Let's start there. Let's define it. What 
Don't you have the white supremacy resource? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't pull it out. <laughs> oh, wow, you're scapegoating me. No, I just didn't know if you knew it off the top of your head. But I, if you'll give me a second, I'll, I'll I grab do. it. I do. I do know it off the top of my head. Well, if you don't want to do it, I'll do it. Look, it's right here. Cool. So let's give the people the definition. Yeah. So, I got to turn to it, though. Cool. So the definition of either or thinking, we're going to start there. Um, so things are either good or they're bad, they're right or they're wrong, and either people are with us or they're against us. Oh my gosh, us versus them. Yeah, totally. Um, so it's closely linked to perfectionism, which we're going to be talking about, um, which makes it difficult to learn from mistakes or accommodate any sort of conflict, which again goes back to our episode on open conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, there leaves very little space for nuance. Or any space for things to be a both-and situation, um, which is really, really difficult for people who have not learned how to do both-and and have just been, you know, taught how to do either-or. Um, it results in trying to simplify very complex things. So uh, an example that they give in this packet, which is on our website if you need the resource, says, for example, believing that poverty is simply a result of a lack of education. Um, so basically what this point is trying to make is that it takes away all the context for um, a situation or a person and just narrows it down to one factor, um, which is really dangerous and really harmful. Bye. And then the last thing it says uh, that it creates conflict and increases the sense of urgency, which again, we have that uh, episode over. As people are felt, they have to make a decision to do either this or that with no time or encouragement to consider alternative approaches, particularly those which may require more time and more resources. Mm, yes. So that is the definition that we are working from. Everyone now is on the same page about what we're talking about when we say either or thinking. Great. So taking that into consideration, as we've learned just a little bit, my first question to you, Jasmine, is how is either or thinking related to um, anti-black racism, the patriarchy, and capitalism? Yeah, so, you know, a small question. <laughs> no big deal. Hold on, let me solve the world's problems. Yeah, so that's a really important question, right? Um, because so much about this particular part, particular part of the series that we are exploring in these episodes, are about how do we enter into loving relationship with ourselves, our young people that are in our lives, our community at large, and and part of entering into loving relationship means that you have to interrogate systems of violence, systems of domination that have created the conditions in which we retool violence Mm -hmm. at the micro level um, and we sort of pass it down to young people, right? And so one way that we do that is through habits of white supremacy uh, and the tactic of white supremacy is the either we're thinking. So the way that either or thinking enters into the paradigm is by creating sort of a, not sort of, uh, creating a binary model in which only certain kinds of people, processes, ideas become acceptable. Yeah. Right? Um, And it uses the power of perfectionism to underpin uh, the question, right? Like begging the question of like, okay, well, if if I as a black person within white supremacy, um, I am on the the receiving side of the bad grade, 
mm. that the grading scale of either or thinking provides, then what is the best thing? Right. And it doesn't have to explicitly state that the best thing is whiteness. It just has to make sure that everything is always uh, created in this sort of like binary where power is whiteness, success is whiteness, uh, the way that is the most comfortable is whiteness, the most acceptable way to have conflict is whiteness, right? It just has to define that um, with the parameters. It never has to explicitly state it. And then it has to demonize or pathologize or center blackness or the other, right again, like the premise that we're accepting here is that the status quo is whiteness. Once it uplifts that blackness is too loud where quietness is desired, blackness is too aggressive where gentleness and kindness is accepted, blackness is too sexually charged where constraint and puritanical value is accepted, right? Yeah. Then we are socialized into this um, sort of rhythm and then we take on the messaging inside ourselves and we perpetuate it. Yep. Um, and so, ultimately, that's how it works with white supremacy. The way it works with capitalism really is that there is a right way and a wrong way to do things that, 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 that supports creating models, mm -hmm. which is a predication of capitalism, right? You, you find the right model. You don't give a fuck about the nuances or the culture in which you're trying to implant the model. You just create the model. And the model shaves off all the undesirable parts of the person or the people or the place. And then you quickly replicate the model and spread it. Yeah, to make it the most profit. To possible. make the most profit. Yeah. Um, and to maintain an elite class and create labor, labor force. And so either or thinking is like there's good work, there's bad work. Yeah. There's working hard, there's being lazy. There is good money, bad money. There's just, it's, it's all situated in this very like diametrically opposed system. And within the nuance is where you find the antidote. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I said a lot. Yeah. And then I want to just kind of come in on the backside of that and talk about how it's related to the patriarchy. Right? So I mean, I suppose that's a thing. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's like, um, like you've talked about, it creates the word that some folks use as a dichotomy. So it puts mm. one thing at the very end of a binary and it puts the other things at the other end of the binary. Um, mm -hmm. so how this relates to the patriarchy and gender by extension, because patriarchy is enforcing that cisgender male people mm. who... Yeah, I would, I would, I would state it that... Patriarchy uses the construct of gender yeah. to define and control people in service of consolidating its power and preserving its power always. Yeah. So anybody who would fall outside of the gender binaries in which patriarchy has con constructed... Is a threat to the power. Is a threat. Mm -hmm. And therefore must be eliminated, must be squashed, must be the scapegoat for all the evils that lay in our society. Um, so... so by definition, just existing as somebody who's outside of the gender binary. You you are you are disrupting either or thinking. Yeah. Because what you're saying is and and also. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I think often when people ask me around uh, the concepts of either or thinking and how it how this idea becomes like really concrete, I always look to trans people as a solution for either or thinking. 
because I think about how vast and deeply imaginative um, the self-determination of trans people is. Mm -hmm. You know, like, being cisgender um, isn't inherently bad. Uh, Affirming the gender binary as a cis person is just, it's so fucking boring. It's so boring. It's so boring. It's so predictable. (laughs) Y'all just lack creativity and imagination. And, you know, capitalism would have us believe that innovation comes from the ways in which capitalism commodifies creativity to create sort of like a product. Um, But I really see so many of my trans and non-binary siblings just flying in the face of that yeah yeah and right and like capitalism is still trying to commodify transness right yeah neoliberalism is coming in and going like oh well you can be the solution to this gender issue that came from nowhere and they don't want to name that like capitalism patriarchy and white supremacy fucking created that the problem like colonization made the binary yeah so you know express is like look oh yeah we've got androgynous clothes come on we're the solution or what's that makeup ad i see all the time on hulu was it for sephora oh god it's like all genders are beautiful and like you don't know it's just commodifying like our bodies and our experiences yeah so for the sake of profit so anyway i mean like honestly all of my trans and non-binary folks who are fucking with those corporations go get the bag yeah like pay your bills yeah, no, no, no shame, no shame there. Uh, but I think that the solution then is to figure out how we hold things in tension, not being afraid that when things feel so big and feel as though it's it's we feel comfort in um, things being either or. What's wrong? Oh no! Oh no! You get mad? You want to hold, doggy? Yeah. When we feel the, the sort of like the comfort and security and things being either or, um, we can we can choose to hold space and to understand that we're expansive and we're capable of holding so much and we're capable of being the solutions that we're hoping for. And I think the thing that is most salient about what the point I'm trying to make is that the state in particular which is an enforcing arm of these habits of oppression, tries to convince us that we have to have guilty and innocent. We have to have good and bad people. We have to have productive and unproductive. We have to have only one version of family and creating sort of identity. And so the more that we engage in habits of creating ecosystems that subvert those normative, like like cis patriarchal heteronormative values, the more power that we build as people and, and the more that like we power shift in, in our direction and make the state completely obsolete. Yeah. Right. Which feels like anarchy. Mm. It feels like anarchy to say, fuck you. You said that a family is a man plus a woman and two kids and a dog. I'm saying that a family is me, my wife, my partner that lives across the country and their family and someone else's kid from another marriage from right like mm-hmm. when we knit together family and we find ways to affirm and empower the entities and the ecosystems that we create um and and we sort of use the system right that's yeah 
incredibly transformative. Yeah. That was like a really complex way, y'all, for me to say that your family is valid however you build it. Yeah. And And that it's an act of radical rebellion for you to say, fuck what Christianity, the state, whiteness, like mainstream America told me, how I'm doing family is totally, totally valid. And it is an act of radical power. Absolutely. Um, So that is the big scale conversation that we're having. That's the context for our more like micro, smaller... Someone say it's the container. The container for our day-to-day life. (laughs) Yay! Our day-to-day life, doing family, doing friendship, you know, just living your life. Like, we're going to... So now that we have the understanding, the context for this, uh, we're going to bring it down just a little bit. And we're going to talk about um, either-or thinking in our personal lives, Mm -hmm. um, as parents to our four kids, as friends and as partners, um, and what that looks like, how that shows up. And why it's so damaging? Why is it something that is a part of this conversation about white supremacy culture? Um, What are the antidotes to it? What are some things that we can relearn around it? So what are the antidotes? So, back to my notes. The antidotes for either-or thinking is to notice when people use either-or language Mm -hmm. and push back. To come up with more than two options. More than two. Yeah. <laughs> you mean more than man and wife in <laughs> yeah. holy matrimony? Um, I just want to say, which we're going to have an episode about this pretty soon. Oh, yeah. I am, we are a non-monogamous family. Mm-hmm. I am poly, uh, polyamorous. Mo is non-monogamous. And I just, you know, I keep coming back to this idea that like the white evangelical which always is cisgender heterosexual patriarchal values conditions conditions folks to understand that the only kind of real power and like true love and acceptable family is between two two people who are of opposing genders and So when you hear I'm me excited em- for that episode. <laughs> yeah, so when you hear me emphasizing that, it's because this conversation of expanding options, of creating collective experience, whether it's around like, sexuality or family, is huge for me. Totally. Yeah, we're gonna do that episode real soon, I think. Yeah. I feel it in my bones. It's gonna be great. Cool. So notice when people are using either or languages and they're creating the problem of it's either this or this. Right? So that's yeah. the first antidote. Uh, this, the, the next antidote is the notice when people are simplifying really complex issues, particularly when it, the stakes seem high or urgent and a decision needs to be made right away. Ooh, so yes. the way to combat that is urgency, of course. slow it down. Slow it down and encourage people to do a deeper analysis. So we see this all the time within like carceral feminism. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So when you're like, oh, this person sexually is a sexual harasser or is, is an assailant as it relates to gender and sex-based violence, everyone goes, lock them up. Mm-hmm. You know, like they need to be charged. They need to go to the state. What if, this, what if the solution is a bit more nuanced than that? Yeah. What if this person is from a community that had all of the structural oppression, none of the skills and well-being, and is just recapitulating the violence that was enacted upon their body, their culture, their life, their family. 
It's right? adding context. Right? Does that make them the ultimate villain? Can we divorce ourselves from the ways in which we have been harmful and problematic and even deeply violent intentionally or otherwise? And put it on them and then lock them away in a cage and feel better, like we've made a safer society and we've never interrogated the ways in which we helped to create that person. Yeah. Or by putting them in the carceral state, we're perpetuating that Where it increase, increases <laughs> the violence, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, let's abolish all prisons. Uh, uh, and ICE. And ICE, yeah. So, so it's that, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's how you refuse to hold nuance whenever your friends get into a fight. And you go, no, there's a good guy here and a bad guy here. Mm. And you do, and you divide people. This reminds me, this is what I've been doing with the kids a lot lately, mm-hmm. is we'll be watching a movie, and they go, oh, he's the bad guy. And I go, is he, though? Like, let's talk about it. In particular, and this is why I love, this is a side thing, but this is why I love Loki mm-hmm. and all of the Marvel movies, is because the other day, Tobias was like, oh, I don't like Loki, he's bad. And Addison goes, uh, he is not always bad. There were a lot of times he did a lot of good things. Right. So she pushed back. <clears throat> At, yes. at nine years old, she was like, I don't believe in that either or thinking. We're I think not that there's failing. Nuance. Oh my god! Yeah, it was really cool. We've been having lots of conversations around that. That's with the dope. shows they're watching. And I think there's a movement within pop culture, which, you know, is often reflective of resistance, but I don't think it should be the definition of our resistance. Um, that of the anti-hero. Yeah. Right? Like where, where the, the bad guy we thought we knew becomes the person who's doing heroic things. And I think that's a really good opportunity for us to enter into conversation about the ways in which we, we predicate our need for this either or thinking into the, like the lives of our stories and ourselves and the story of self. Right, like I did, I I am I am bad. I have to repent. Ooh, yeah. There's an ultimate savior. There's an ultimate. But that's honestly like Christianity does that to people. That part. That part. That part. That right. Part, that part. <laughs> There's just sort of like this ultimate masculine. Well, yeah, and that's my savior who was born without fault or error, and within that construct, his lack of fault or error also meant like. He was asexual. He had no desire for anyone. He was never messy. Mm-hmm. He was never hungry or overindulgent. Yeah. Anytime he experienced like rage or discomfort, it was always righteous. It was a holy rage. It was holy. And then you've got like this tempting demon who comes and is like, wait, but you can know more than what people are telling you you can know. You know, I mean, there's like, that's a whole other episode too. Well, yeah, but as it relates to my personal life growing up in the Southern Baptist Western Christianity evangelical Either world. Either or thinking was programmed into your life yeah. through evangelical into, Christianity. Into like my DNA. It was like either you're sinful and unrepentant or you give over your entire life to Christ and you can never make mistakes now and you have to be the leader and you have to follow, like lead others to holiness. You are holy and devout or you are reprobate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and which created a whole... Wow. Bunch but that of different even, things. But that but... doesn't even make sense around the concept of grace, by no, the way. No, that's what well, always messes me. No, 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 no. Actually, no. Let me just back up. That actually makes sense for grace because grace and that that construct means that there's a paternalistic figure who can come in and absolve you of your yeah. sins. So then you trust the masculine yeah. forgiver yeah. of sins, right? Like he can absolve you of everything, mm-hmm. which conditions you to support like white hetero. Mm-hmm patriarchy yeah well, and it's and, like what if i can fucking absolve myself well yeah but that's why i was so hungry for the concept of grace that was pres- that was presented within the original text within scripture 
Mm. Because that version of grace was so restoring and so healing. And whenever we get back to the grace that was given to us within this scripture, it's like, oh, you messed up. And that's okay. Like, there's room for that. That's what I was always striving for. That's what I was hungry for. That's not what was presented to me or preached about, um, unfortunately. But I think we're digressing. We are. We're on a tangent. We're going to bring it back. So that was the antidote for either or thinking. There is uh, one more that they list, um, which says that when people are faced with an urgent decision, um, take a break. Breathe. Think creatively. Slow it down. Mm-hmm. Get avoid- on color people time. Yeah, and avoid making decisions under extreme pressure. So if there has been a very emotionally charged conflict or fight, and you decide in that moment, this is what has to be done, and there's nothing else that can happen, that's either or thinking. That happens in business meetings. That happens in small group settings. That happens in interpersonal relationships. Mo, I hate you. Stop. <laughs> Mo. So giving time, giving each other time to reflect, to breathe, to calm down, to see the context in which people are coming to this disagreement or, or whatever, dif- or difficulty... That allows you for nuance. Um, it allows you to push back against, well, you're either wrong or you're right. Um, so that's one of the benefits to pushing back against either or thinking. For interpersonal relationships. Go ahead and at me, Mo. <laughs> I'm not going to at you on a podcast. I'm just saying. It's helpful. Yeah, you're saying with sustained eye contact. Listeners, <laughs> if you could be here, you could see... The body language assault that I just experienced from my wife. Oh my they are reading my whole life right now. Jasmine just did a hair flip. Cool. So that's a more um, personal level. That's the antidotes that have been given. But so how do we apply this with our kids? Yeah, that's what I was about to... You, you beat me there. How do we do this? What, do we, what does this look like for our parenting? Well, I think that you already uh, articulated one way that we support our kids doing it, right? We... Use media and popular culture uh, mediums to have conversations and challenge the narrative that's being presented, right? Like, is that person really a bad guy? Yeah. Are they ultimate evil? Do they need to be abolished, vanquished? they need to be punished? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And then as we're playing the referees... Hi, baby. Did you find a rapper? That's so crinkly. I love it. He's so cool. He's so cool. As we're playing referees to their conflict, uh-huh. we don't really take sides. We, we, we don't, try. We don't use our hierarchical power to affirm one side or the other. We try and talk about how can we transform this moment that was really difficult? How can we restore uh-huh. uh, the equilibrium of justice that y'all had prior to this experience? Yeah. And how do you accept that maybe this person isn't the worst person you've ever met or yeah. experienced? And, and, you know, and there's more to the story. You want more ice? Augie wants more ice. Come here. Yeah, so that applies to their, their personal fights, but it also pushes back on the perfectionism that so many kids feel um, internally around like schoolwork or performance. Um, right. It's we like, also do that. Yeah, yeah. It's also like, hey, we don't care what your grade is. We don't need it to say that you got an A and A means you're great and a C or a D means that you failed. It's that's like such harmful thinking that creates mm. perfectionism, that creates, you know, like insecurities and self-doubt. And so we push back on that and say, like, 
it literally, like, we don't care whatever your scorecard says. We just want to know that, like, you're trying, you're pushing yourself, you're, like, creating community at school, you're doing the things that you know that you need to do to, like, live your best life, you know? Like, <laughs> but we, so we push back on that in, in how we are parenting them around their schoolwork. Because, yeah. I mean, a large part of kids' life, unfortunately, these days is school. And so we have to acknowledge that. And then being we have conditioned to... into the workforce. Well, yeah, that's ho- the whole point of the educational system right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, that's another way that we do it. We also, in our language that we use, we try very, very hard and intentionally to stray away from the word but. Mm-hmm. So we'll say something like, um, what's an example? Like, I see that you did this, and what, can, can you think of a sentence that would work in? Yeah, I mean, something that I said the other day, it's really important for me to cuddle with you and communicate that I love you through touch, and I'm feeling really overwhelmed, and I don't want to be touched right now. Mm-hmm. And so I need you to give me some space and understand that it's not because I don't love you or I'm rejecting you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so that right, we hold and, all of everyone's needs in that scenario in tension. Yeah, the and is what provides the tension. If 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 Jasmine were to have said, uh, "I love cuddling with you, and I know that you need that physical affection, but I don't want to right now," or for whatever reason, that that language in and of itself, uh, like draws well, it, that it either. It talks or about priority, right? Yeah. It, it prioritizes something. I can I can prioritize my like the the understanding that my kid needs me and needs and wants to touch me while also acknowledging that I'm touched out. Yeah, and it encourages that tension like you were talking about. It teaches them at a young age that t- both things can be true at yeah. the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are some of the more concrete ways in which it, that shows up for us in parenting. I feel like we veered all over the place here. <laughs> Well, I'm not so close to the microphone because there's a baby pulling 4,000 things off of the shelf. Yeah. But I hope this entry point in this conversation, honestly, we're not trying to bring, um, you know, all these hard and fast solutions. We're trying to start conversations that shift culture around parenting. Mm -hmm. And so if the only thing you do is understand that there's more nuance, there's no... 100% 100% bad guy, 100% good guy, that we can hold multiple things in tension, then you've done something revolutionary for your family. Totally. For the young people that are entrusted to you, that trust you. And it also helps you resist the sense of urgency, the perfectionism, the fear of conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's good work. Yeah, and I, I think, think it's necessary work. It is. And I think that if we were to say this is the model and this is how you do it, people's <laughs> shit would get lost, right? Yeah, but that would be playing into that binary model, right? Yeah. It wouldn't allow for the nuance of different families and different uh, like ways of life and being. Like it would be like this is how it has to work 100% of the time. This is the model we're going to provide you. Mhm. You have to follow it to get these results. It's like, nah. Let's just have a conversation about it. In and of that conversation, that's where transformation happens within community and in our interpersonal relationships and with the world. Right. What has been true in my life is there's always been this conversation of 
You're either an abuser or the abused. You're either the assailant or the victim. Mm -hmm. And so many of us move in and out of those designations. I have been the abuser. I have been the abused. I've been the assailant. I have been the victim. And I've been both at the same time of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that my trauma and pain isn't valid. Because that's where the majority of people around this conversation come into. They think that if they have to acknowledge that they may have been complicit or even perpetrating some of the violence in difficult situations, that that it means that the harm they experienced wasn't valid. Yeah. But it totally is. Absolutely. And yes, there are places where there is an absolute abuser because that abuser has been confronted, has been given opportunity to restore and, and repair the harm, and continues with disregard to engage in violence. Mm-hmm. And those, but those y'all, those are very rare people in our society. Few and far between. Unfortunately, we know some of those people. Mm-hmm. And those people are not the majority. Yeah. But either or thinking would lead us to believe that they're, they are the majority. Mm-hmm. So that we act in fear and reactivity toward one another. That we limit our authenticity and vulnerability to one another. That we isolate ourselves. Because in that isolation, we begin to def- depend deeply on the systems of violence. Because they give us this illusion of stability and well-being and protection that is not real. Right? Like mm-hmm. that's, It's an illusion. It's a facade. Yeah. And so if we can go through our life thinking that everyone's a bad guy and I'm a good guy and I have to stay on the side of the good guys, you know what? It divides our power. It makes us believe that we are homogenous. It makes us believe that we should just trust these systems and industrialized um, complexes that offer protection and stability and identity when in reality we make them real. They don't make us real. We make them real. Yeah. So the state doesn't make us safe. We make us safe. Mm-hmm. And the state doesn't decide who's innocent and who's guilty. We do. And if we all believe that parts of us are guilty, then we all have a hand in changing things and, and, and catapulting the world toward deeper, deeper justice. Yeah. But if that feels overwhelming to us, I can understand why we would accept that the state can help us have a more just world through pen, you know, punitive and carceral habits. Yeah. Because then we never have to do the interrogation process, right? So this is really, either or thinking and divorcing ourselves from it, really is an invitation to like courageous evaluation of the story of self as we orient ourselves within community. And it also paves the way for transformative and restorative justice to take place. Real justice, yeah. which is real justice. Mm-hmm. Not carceral state justice, like... Yeah, not, not punishment. True justice. But the person who did the harm has support to change and never do the harm again. And those who were harmed are centered and loved and mm-hmm. restored. Yeah. And I just don't think you can do that if you're always... In either or. In either or. There yeah. has to be nuance. There has to be grace. There has to be both and. There are gray areas that we hold in tension. Mm-hmm. Most feeling feelings, y'all. Oh, I typically do. <laughs> I think we're going to end there. I think that feels like a really great soft landing spot. Mm. Unless you had anything else to add. No, I just want to I just want to be uh vulnerable and authentic okay. in the spirit of either we're thinking and just admit that I'm worried that because we didn't give sort of this clear path to this conversation that was wrapped up in a nice neat package and there was far more noise than usual 
that people are going to be like, oh, you're either a good podcast or a bad podcast. You're either professional or you're not. Great. I'm, I'm dealing with my own habits of perfectionism there. So thanks, listeners, for hanging in there and allowing us to show up authentically. This is the work. Yeah, and this is real life. It's very real that our child is pulling everything off the shelves. Trash, 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 and everywhere. getting trash out of the trash can in the middle of us talking. So we appreciate you hanging in there with us. Yeah. Um, we would, I would, I won't speak for you, but I would love y'all's feedback. I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions surrounding these conversations, um, you can direct message me on Instagram under the Parenting is Political handle. You can also email me at contact is, at, or contact at parentingispolitical.org. Um, and I will get back to you and answer some questions. And if we get enough folks who send in questions, then maybe we can do like a Q&A session. Yes! Um, where we can sit down with the questions that you've emailed and we'll answer them. So get curious. Ask some questions. Um, I would love to hear from you. Um, and that's it. That's where we're going to end. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye.